Hi, this is Araceli Camargo, and I am part of the Centric Lab. Um, we are going to be introducing the topic of COVID and BAME communities. We're going to be delving deep into the phenomena and also looking to reframe um, the definitions and the concepts of health so we can actually achieve health justice. Um, so I'm gonna start with an introduction to the team. So um, our team is predominantly made up of people from underrepresented communities. And I think that's a really important thing to point out because it fuels the type of science that we do. Um, certainly a lot of us have personal or within family experiences of a lot of the phenomena that we discuss. So it is a point of personal passion. And I think it's also a point of steering and motivation to get to the bottom of um, health injustice or the health injustices that we are currently seeing. We are predominantly a neuroscience lab. So we use neuroscience to bring another type of lens to historical work done in epidemiology. Um, so now I'm going to turn it over to the team um, to do their personal introductions. So Sarah, you want to go ahead? Yes. Hi. I'm Sarah Liko. Uh, I am a computational neuroscientist, a PhD student at UCL, uh, but I come from a background in molecular biology, and I'm really interested in understanding how uh, everything about humans works, you know, from the molecular level to the bigger uh, level, such as the brain. And so I would like to uh, keep working on how um, humans build systems and how humans operate within systems and this is why I'm also working with the centric lab because it puts humans in perspective in urban environments and it studies how we interact with our urban environment so this is why I love working um, with the centric lab. Awesome thanks Sarah. Um, Dan? Yeah I'm Daniel Akinola Odisola and I guess my background is cognitive science, neuroimaging, and data science. And I'll, I guess we have a lot of overlapping interests with Sarah, to be honest, but um, I think what I've expanded from is the mechanical and like the mechanical understanding of things like perception to the more kind of subjective part of science as well into like how that goes more into experimental design and the communication. So again, with the work that we're doing here, it's cool because it's is kind of like the chance to not do science or research or data in a black hole, but it's creating a pipeline so that you can see the effects more readily and you make questions that matter. So, yeah. So, Josh? Hi, I'm Josh Artis. I run Centric Lab with Araceli. Uh, I'm the only non-scientist in the team. I'm more of our sort of urban lead. Uh, my background comes from working for about 10, 11, 12 years at the intersection of technology, placemaking and real estate. Uh, I'm focused on uncovering where the system-based problems are in things such as urban planning and our real estate programs because those are the levers in which we have urban development. And so if we can identify those and ally them with evidence-based and quantitative tools such as the stuff that the lab produced, then we can really bring out the solutions that we need to bring into cities uh, to protect them for ourselves and for the future humans that will inhabit them. And Araceli, you haven't actually given yourself a full introduction. Um, no, and we also have to give a shout out to our last puzzle piece, which is Elahi Hussein, who unfortunately can't be with us because he has 
PhD, no master, sorry, commitments. Uh, but he has, he is the essential coiner of the term biological inequality, which we're going to come into in the discussion, which has been one of the pillars to the work that we do. So shout outs to Alahi. Um, and yes, I'm Araceli and I am a cognitive neuroscientist. That is my um, background. I am very interested in how we keep our entire biological systems healthy. So that is brain and body. And now as we are advancing, we are realizing that it is one system. So neuroscience is now with the bigger N rather than just looking at the brain. Um, okay, so we're going to start the discussion um, with some anchoring of definitions, and then we're going to start also a conversation. So this is going to be quite free-flowing. So the explorations that we've been having with both the first report that we did on BAME and inequality. Um, we didn't really touch upon it there, but we're definitely hitting it with the new study that's going to be coming out that we're submitting to The Lancet, which is an anti-racist structure to the discussion of health. And by that, we mean that we are looking at how structural racism has played a role in poor health outcomes, but also how do we make the changes also anti-racist, which is so it's forcing us to think very systemically. Um, and then that brings us to another definition, which is health. So the way that um, Centric is defining health is the ability to, for your body to have stability through time and that that stability is coming through the support of the environment. So we're moving the conversation of health from the individual to the system. And then the final definition to set us off is health justice. So part of the civil rights movement, so I'm talking back with Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, um, health was an incredible, it was a very important pillar to that conversation. And as Black Lives Matter guide us to a whole new era of civil rights movement, I think it's appropriate that we bring back that word um, justice into health, because that really is what we're looking at. We're, we're, we're looking at bringing justice to people that are constantly being um, put in environments that are bad for their health. Um, so to start off with, let's talk about essentially the elephant in the room, the problem with the BAME classification. So um, who wants to go first? Um, I think the problem with BAME is it gets classified very broadly and sometimes it's not even ethnically. Um, it's defined as like black people, Asian and my ethnic minority, but that is such a broad term. And sometimes you have different categories within it. For instance, you have people of Bangladeshi and Pakistani descent, but that is not an ethnicity, that is a country. So why would we define a country as an ethnic group when that's really not the case? So I think that is one of the issues of how we collect this data and how we analyze it. We're looking at countries rather than looking at groups of communities and people within them. So for instance, we might have people who are living in the UK, but are immigrants, or we have people who are uh, people of color, for instance, who live in the UK, but were born uh, from and come from generations of being here. So are those the same 
you know, community or, or do we consider them differently? That's a question for me. Yeah, Agreed. that's a really good point. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, yeah, that's exactly it. It's, it's you, as with any form of identification or language, you're already making a statement by saying th this is the axis on which we're choosing. So even before you crunch the numbers or before you collect any data, the classification itself is already making a statement about what you're allowing to be possible. And, you know, in some of these cases, especially with when you include ethnic minorities, it, it, the difference between the UK and US situation, for instance, on what immigration even means and how they treat immigration and what makes someone can be considered ethnically national is that it's not something that it's not something that science can you know, like that you could look at someone scientifically and say oh yes i know your um your trajectory like they try and do that with some of these tests you know to say that I can, you can get your percentage of the region you're from and all that but that wouldn't say anything about your eating habits around the culture around you know you could be from um nigeria but you were from the muslim part versus the christian part mm -hmm. you know all these things are would be under one big blanket but depending on what question you're asking you 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 might need to go further down than that and it might be oversimplifying the experience 100 percent, and i think also if we're going to talk about bame then we also have to talk about white and then you also white is also incredibly difficult to define because are you yeah. talking again about culture are you talking about the color of their skin and then are you talking about country of origin because certainly somebody from finland is not the same as somebody from iceland and it's not the same from somebody in the uk um yeah. and so um really what we're getting to the bottom of is that race doesn't exist <laughs> um the experience of racism does but race in itself doesn't and it's very difficult um, in the sciences when we're trying to study where science loves taxonomy and it loves categorization because it allows us a, a, a way, almost like a highway or through line to be able to access certain data. Um, so let's talk about then our decision over the fact that we have used BAME terminology within our, certainly within our first study and we decided to because really because that was the way to access data and it was also the way to understand how structural racism plays out in a city like london so do you guys want to talk about that i think maybe start off dan because you are um you love yourself some classifications and taxonomies um <laughs> and, and data so do you want to say then why unfortunately we had to be shackled to using um that terminology in terms of data and then we'll pass it on to sarah as well to talk about it from the data perspective yeah so i mean i think the whole idea is that i mean we've been working with a lot of open source data and you know, the, the thing is, it's like, the thing about data is that it, it, like, the more control, like, if you don't have control over the collection, which for health is really hard to be the people that are the gatekeepers of, of collecting. So whatever, and usually those people will have a culture and they'll be in line with the census, they'll be in line with national sentiment, etc. So to be able to collect something that's not in line with what they're doing is incredible would be incredibly difficult so the fact that we're using open source means we have to go with what's available and you know the end of the day what we eventually want to do is build a new culture and how the classifications come into science but i think you know for now it's the case is to say you know at least this exists you know, 
in some form, there's some fashion that we can iterate on it, but at least we've done something with it. Um, yeah, so I think it's, I think it's the working with what we have basically. And, you know, in what we want to, what we'd want to do is as you'd usually do scientifically is you'd kind of say, this is what we've done now when the discussions or the conclusion or whatever, you talk about why this can be improved, why there needs to be a movement, you know, whether it's with ethnicity, whether it's the type of pollution, you know, why there should be more of a culture in collecting things this way or in categorizing people in a different way that gives more nuance. Yeah, I'd say we have probably have more classifications for food colorings by labels than we do yep. people. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if you think about the industry for those classifications, it, it would make sense why they, they they go that detailed into it. So again, yes, you've got to follow the money or the... It's on a vested interest basis, you know, it's yep. um, it really, are you willing to take the time to expose what's needed to be put in place? You know, you look at the construction industry and yep. the difference of the materialities is well documented when you look at all other forms of, you know, this is really boring, but there's a thing called like party wall assessments in, in real estate that if you share a wall and the debates that go on between the differences of one of a neighbor to another and party wall definitions. And yet we have what, like maybe three ways to describe people. I think that that's where we're looking. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's the pr- that's so perfect. Yeah. That's like the perfect analogy. That's exactly it. So I think what we're trying to do here is push to be able to say there's enough relevance in it that people would want to take the time or, you know, at least establish the culture of taking the time to build on those classifications or maybe even deciding that for this question, that classification isn't necessary, but we're not going to jump to some conclusion that acted like we did make a further classification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sarah, do you want to I add think, anything? Yes. Um, the reason why we use BAME in our study is exactly that because we don't have other data as of yet. And this is what the government and other scientists have been collecting, unfortunately. And they've decided that, you know, we're going to put everyone in one bucket and everyone else who doesn't fit in that bucket is in another one. So basically we have this situation of us versus them again. And that has no place in science because science should be objective and it should be impartial. And I think this is what's driving us at Centric is that we want to change that and make sure that science becomes even more impartial than it already is because it has some inherent bias as we can see because if we're defining people whether they belong to this BAME category or not um, and this is such a reductionist term of, of a category so it basically influences how we study things how we look at things and how we find solution to think, solutions to things. So I think the progress we've made in science is very limited and it's been driven by a, basically this bias that society has imposed, yes. Yeah, that is really, really dope, Sarah. Yeah, that's that's spot on that, um, again, in, in bringing it back to anti-racism, there's still so much work to do because even Mm-hmm. the frameworks that we have and the tools that we have to study are still within a very racialized or racist mm-hmm. system. Um, and I think the the final point to to round that off is that we also used it because actually we wanted to study the phenomena of racism and health and we wanted to create that biological link and understanding how that phenomena comes together 
which mm-hmm. was then using essentially the, the white supremacy tools, because let's face it, that's what they are. And um, however, if we really, if we wanted to do a study about health and communities, then using MAME actually would not have helped us, which yep. could be a part two of the, of the study that we're, that we're doing. Okay, so moving on to, I would say something quite central to the conversation because it really, really impacts the way that we frame this is when we talk about health in this way and how do we start to bring in the conversation? So one of the main characteristics to our study was the fact that we were looking at allostatic load. And so for uh, listeners, allostatic load, uh, sorry, allostasis, I should say first, allostasis is stability through time. So it's the way that our body adapts to changes within the environment. And um, you guys can read the detail of it within the study, but What's interesting about framing it from from an allostatic perspective is that we're moving the conversation more away from the the biological determinism. So we're born with X genes, therefore X ethnic communities are going to be more likely to get diabetes or they're going to be more likely to um, to to have hypertension. So, um, given Sarah that you are the microbiologist, or you have uh, in our team, do you want to explain a little bit more about how you see that conversation between adaptation genes and the mm-hmm. environment, just so we can get that foundation? Yeah. So I think this started all with um, the theory of natural selection, right? So our bodies every be every being on this planet the body adapts to the environment it's put in so as humans as well if we're put it in one environment we will adapt to it in a certain way if we're put in a very different one we will adapt differently and we do this through our biological system so we have different reactions in our body and different mechanisms and um, within our metabolism that allows us to respond to whatever the environment is throwing at us um, and this is part of the idea of allostatic, uh, allostasis and allostatic load. So uh, as Aracelli said, allostasis is how do we adapt to the environment over time? And allostatic load is when the environment basically becomes a bit overbearing. And so we have too many negatives or too many stresses in the environment that cause our body to basically become dysregulated over time. And I think... In terms of how human societies have been built, this is a very important question because um, we don't really often look at this is, do humans that are you know, forced to live in a certain environment have uh, as a result a specific health outcome than humans who are living in a different environment? And so this is what we're really interested in is what happens with years and years of structural racism like what the, what is the health outcome of that on the human body so we're trying to put the connection between societal uh, norms and regulations and policies environment and us as humans biological systems yeah perfect um so that brings us perfectly to the next part of the conversation which is biological inequality so as i said that was coined by our colleague elahi hussein because what we one of the two um things that we use in our studies is the srs and i will let daniel go into it in um 
a bit because he was one of the main creators of the of ESRS. So that is where we look at environmental stressors, so air, noise, light, and noise. And also the IMD, which is the index of mass deprivation. So we've used index of mass deprivation as a proxy to psychosocial stressors. So this is the experiences that you're having in the environment, whereas the SRS tells us how much environmental stressors you're, you're, you're having. And when the cocktail of the two things come together in an apex, i.e. you've got high uh, scores of both, then that's when you have biological inequality because your body is being sub subjected to unequal amounts of stress. But that really sits on the shoulders of the weathering hypothesis, um, which is which was identified in the 90s as Black people specifically experiencing higher levels of amounts of stress. So we're really picking up the baton from there and showcasing how allostatic load then is a pathology to disease. But Dan, do you want to say anything um, deeper about the SRS um, and or the weathering hypothesis? Yeah, so I think what it does, because obviously, as we've mentioned earlier on, a lot of these things you have to treat, like I think the best way to approach science and to approach like real like, data use is to know, is to kind of know your li limits and know that it's an iterative process, but like have intention, you know? So the thing is, is that the SRS, like right now we used annual averages and we kind of had to make some, you know, because of again, the culture of collecting the data we'd ideally use isn't established yet. And it's not a case that you could go to a government and say, like, actually, what's the current rate in this area of this? We've started from the idea of saying of having kind of like the placeholder relevant information and data to say this is at least on an annual level how we understand this environment. So we we look at averages related to different parts of London, for instance, but your lived experience might be different because something political or something cultural could have happened two weeks ago that made more trucks come through your street, even though your street usually would be quite barren of, um, of traffic. But I think what, what we've done with the SRS, it kind of highlights a baseline of how to understand the differences. So you can actually understand that if your lived experience is different, you know, why is it different? So why would, if we've said that this place actually doesn't have as much psychosocial stressors based on averages and it doesn't have environmental stresses based on averages, but you're saying I'm sitting here and my community is feeling this, then most likely you'll be able to pinpoint to the fact that some real time thing has changed. You know, some, maybe some, uh, you know, developer has come in and done some development or maybe um, there's an event that's going on or maybe the, um, there was funding initially for a program that helped clean the streets and give more open area to things that for some reason has stopped this year. And now, and it's going to be a year or two before anyone even sees it in the data, but you as a person living there will be able to see it next week. You know, you'll be able to see it when you can't take walks anymore. So I think what we're doing with the SRS again, is just to build that, to build that track record, I guess, so people can actually iterate on that. So then that whole idea of the weathering effect, isn't something, something that someone says, oh, we don't really have that, so we don't know how to fit it into our study, but they could say, all we need to do is go back and recheck with this community, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that absolutely does. And I think that, again, so w w leads us to the health justice piece where, you know, 
there is so much that needs to be in place. So one of the one of our advisors that are that's on the Lancet paper, you know, he's really he's really making us be very detailed about the anti-racist work that we're doing with the paper, and even the fact that we have been able to create the SRS because London has open access data. And there we can tell people, um, by the way, you are going to experience biological inequality because we can give you this data. We can give you this measurement is actually unique to how London um, specifically to the contributions of King's college London. So KCL and their, and their air pollution data has made that open access. And so, ONS, and uh, you yes, know, because a lot of the London data store stuff is from ONS yeah. um, that have just, yeah, the Office of National Statistics, which has helped during COVID as well. So, <laughs> yeah, and how that has been different, you know, we couldn't do it for New York yet because, I mean, in this format of open source, or we couldn't do it for, um, for another major city like Melbourne in Australia. Yet or we, other parts of the UK as well. This is true. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that means just because we can't measure it, which goes to one of your points, Dan, doesn't mean that the experience isn't happening. And even though the weathering effect is something that was, it is still very American centric. It's something that we, through our discoveries of biological inequality of being able to have these two measurements of the IMD and our SRS, we want to be able to give that to the people, which we have. So we, on, on, if you guys check out our website, we have something called the Urban Health Index for London. And then you can understand if you're living in an area of high or low health based on this metric of biological inequality. And I think that starts to really help us in being able to ask for health justice because we now have the data. We have the data that backs up. So the 90s, so that's what nearly... 20 plus years of, of science saying that the weathering effect or biological inequality is a real phenomenon and it's a real pathology to disease. And from then picking up from what Sarah was saying, it, then it doesn't, it doesn't matter your, your skin tone color or your ethnicity. It's that if you are put and subjected to these environments, that's what's going to make the difference. Mm-hmm. But um, Sarah, do you want to add a little bit about, cause we talked about it offline um, today about even the phenomenon of sickle cell anemia, how that had been predominantly, oh, well, only African-Americans get sickle cell anemia or what I was saying about how uh, Native Americans, there's a lot of papers that will tell you that Native Americans, they're very susceptible to diabetes. But again, we have mm-hmm. to talk about it from the environment terms to both be anti-racist and also be accurate to health, to be good scientists. Yeah, absolutely. So there is a preconception in a lot of science papers that because of your skin tone or because of your background somehow, uh, you are the reason for the disease that you are experiencing. So if you are, say, Native American and you have diabetes, the reason why you get diabetes, according to a lot of people, is that you're Native American. So that is a it's the wrong cause-effect idea because what we were discussing about before with Araceli was that a lot of studies on Native Americans are done on reservations in the U.S., for instance, and the people living in these reservations are often um, very isolated uh, spatially. Um, They experience a lot of poverty and obviously also a lot of racism and prejudice. So all of these stressors play a role in how 
your body adapts to the environment and obviously having so much um, thrown at you the whole time your body cannot adapt all the time and so it becomes dysregulated and that leads to a cascade of effects and therefore at the extreme level it becomes disease and therefore diabetes or obesity or something else you know so yeah. it's it's really not about who the person is because if you put anybody else of other ethnicity of whatever you want to call it in that environment in that same environment they are going to have some negative effect on their health yeah. if you take a native american person from that environment and you place them in a more pristine and clean and healthy one they are going to get better so it's definitely a communication a continuous talk between you and the environment and if you are in a very unhealthy one there is no communication that can continue you know yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also, and maybe Dan, you can chime into this, but it's, a, but data isn't um, unbiased as we think that it is like, oh, it's a yeah. number, so it's fine. Um, this is another point that Daniel loves. Um, and I think when you look at the numbers in that microcosm where you're like, well, we went to, let's say, continue on the Native American trend, we went to five reservations and we got the same results where Native Americans have disproportionate uh, levels of diabetes in comparison to the rest of the population. Therefore, Native Americans are susceptible to diabetes is such a mic. It's like, it's like you're looking to build a puzzle with just three puzzle pieces that you're zoomed into. But when you zoom back out and you look at the data from the perspective of, well, we, we did analyze this group of people or this community in a very specific context of environments, all these environments mm -hmm. from our score would all score high on the IMD level and would also score high from an environmental level um, to a certain extent because some reservations have been depleted from an environment perspective as well. So they don't have running water or clean water, for example. Um, and they don't have access to, uh, a lot of them don't have access to nutritional food or running water, electricity, et cetera. So, mm -hmm. so, so then you're really, what you're saying is that actually when you zoom out, you're like, well, you're going to have to take in consideration that these, all of these environments are very similar. So if you have three, four generations growing up in a very similar environment, you're going to have very similar adaptations. So Dan, yeah, you want to, do you want to chime in a little bit on the whole thing about how data is not as unbiased as we would love it to be? Yeah, I mean, as you've kind of highlighted before about the, I mean, we're in 2020, we're kind of in a weird, in a weird space where a lot of the research and things that we've um, used as the basis for people getting their PhDs, building entire departments, etc. People, because of the way information flows now and the increasing accessibility, which is still not necessarily accessible now, but it's more so. Um, a lot of researchers are coming back on something and saying, hey, that person that you've been lauding for 30 years was very incubated in how they approached, like they, maybe they meant well, but they were very incubated in how they approached these questions and these topics. And I think what the only way it's really going to be done is like, yeah, like it's not about like, even being unbiased, but it becomes a case of like jurisdiction and a case of saying like, and just be holding yourself accountable as a researcher and as a department mm -hmm. and being able to say that, do I, rather than I've got funding, I can do it. You're saying, having a question of, am I, am I the right person to even do it? Because, you know, I'm involved in a few different like diversity and in, um, inclusivity sort of like campaigns and stuff like that. And 
that's been a big issue, even with things like hiring processes. Like people want to be more inclusive in their how they're, they're hiring. But obviously people want to do it from the research standpoint to say, what are the needs? What are the whatever? But if you don't have the right person or the right system set up to ask those questions, then you're going to say, oh, it's because people of this ethnicity don't like, you know, completing college and then finding jobs. When, you know, and, you, and, you, and your data could say that, but it might be the case that you haven't investigated, you haven't actually talked to them. You have to say why, you know, because most people can't wait six months to find the right thing. So maybe a lot of them cop out and go to something that will get them money within six months rather than waiting two years to get that into that next step. But that's something that's only happens when you use the data and analyze, not without bias, but with a bias towards, you know, noticing that something does exist and working your way backwards. Yeah, is that data has to exist also within an experience and within a, mm-hmm. with, within, within a system, which is what essentially we concluded with, with our studies and a lot of the work that we do is that sometimes the data doesn't tell us the picture that is happening in outside, you know, outside of our window. Like we have done many pieces of research where we, the data is telling us one thing, but outside it's like, it's not raining and we're looking out the window going, yeah, but it is. And sometimes, <laughs> yeah. right. And, and sometimes you do have to then push as a scientist. And again, that goes back to the very beginning of being anti-racist that if you did as a scientist and you're just stopping at, well, this group of people just always get sick you're not doing your due diligence because then how do we, and this is where we're going to wrap it up, but how do we get health justice if everyone just like, well, that's a predisposition. See you later. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to be able to, if to go, well, no, it's the environment and it's these things in the environment, which is what we hopefully with centric, we're going to continue to iterate, but that is what we're pointing to um, um, is let's look at air pollution. Let's look at noise pollution. Let's look at it from, a, you know, the poverty experience and let's fix those things because all of those things are very fixable. And then we can start reducing biological inequality, the weathering effect, and thus then affecting the, the poor outcomes of health. Um, so um, given that we're now ending with the industry side, do you wanna, do you wanna take us home, Josh, and, and tell us what is the responsibility then of, of industry? If the environment is the jam, what is industry's responsibility? Uh, the industry's responsibility is to not ignore the science, which it has done for years. Um, so the, the thing about the, the SRS and the other visualization tool is that it is that it's a visualization tool. And Aricelli, you said something a little while ago, that this is almost like an MRI for the built environment, that we're understanding the underlying factors that flow through a city and we can diagnose where we identify the hotspots and those hotspots are determined by the research. And so there's no, there's no uh, moving around the reality that when you identify an area of high biological inequality, it's a factor of, right, now we know it, it's now time to start solving it. So I think there's one, there's the humility, there's the awareness uh, to grow up and move forward. But uh, practically, it's enabling uh, urban planning to recognise and baseline uh, community health, which is something that's not done in practice. Um, it's generally assessed that a community can handle a certain national standard. But what we're uncovering is that when communities are set, uh, are exposed to a chronic and disproportionate level of stresses, their susceptibility to any intervention is going to be more amplified and more problematic. So in this case, we want these tools to empower decision makers to safeguard existing 
existing communities, whilst also ensuring that new interventions are going to come in that are climate conscious, that are community conscious, as well as the future residents that are going to live there, the future children, the future elderly people that are going to be in those environments. From a practitioner point of view, they're slower to respond. A lot of them are very health conscious, but it's a slow process. It has to be done from an industry and policy point of view. Um, ultimately, we need the policymakers to recognise this difference, and that's where we're taking this work. As Centric Lab, we need, we're going to be running a, a civic voice. We will need your support in multiple ways, uh, but we are going to be campaigning for change and to get the decision makers to upgrade their understanding on what is health and what is your health. Yep. No. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Do look at an Urban Health Index, which is the baby of all of us on our team. Download the letter and get your and tell your MP that if you're that you're living in an area of biological quality, if you are, and if you're living in an area that scores really good health, tell your MP that you're really grateful for it and to keep the to keep up the good work. Cool. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. Thank Chen. you. Speak soon. Yeah.